Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's be in class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so privileged to be able to come together, worship, study, and we ask that your uh, your spirit join us, enlighten our minds, help us uh, to uh, discern through many different concepts to come to the salient truths about your kingdom, that we can grow in uh, our love and, gr- and faith in you, and that we can uh, experience the healing and transformation of our hearts and minds that you've designed for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in the uh, quarterly Daniel, and the title is From Contamination to Purification. As we get into this lesson today, I want to kind of preamble with uh, saying that there are going to be lots of details, and many people get confused and even argue or disagree over the details, but there's really no need for that, because we simply need to remember, irrespective of our agreement on the details, the big themes And remember the big themes, we usually have agreement, and the big themes are God is the creator who created all his universe sinless and perfect in harmony with his own nature and character of love and his laws are the design laws. This is how he originally built things. Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, he infected humankind with a terminal condition called sinfulness. Jesus was promised in Genesis 3 to come and save humanity to provide the remedy for our sin condition. This means, I'm going to say this out loud because I get accused of denying this all the time, that we could not be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our substitute. But we believe in substitutionary atonement like the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There you go. Substitution right there. But here's the reason the Bible gives. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the reason for the substitution is to take what Adam did, sinfulness, and restore us to righteousness. That's the reason. We don't believe in the in the distortion that says he took upon himself uh, he 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 became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be declared righteous, even though we're still unrighteous or we're not righteous. That's not what the Bible teaches. We actually get to become righteous. We get to be healed, restored, regenerated. So, big theme, God's creator, Adam sinned, uh, infected humankind with a terminal condition. Jesus comes to do that which we could not do to fix this condition, to become our substitute so that we could be healed. And then after Jesus' victory 2,000 years ago on earth, he now works from heaven to, uh, works from heaven in the lives of believers to heal and to restore, to apply, if you will. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Paul said. This is known as the sanctuary message. Very simple. That's what the whole sanctuary theater is designed to teach. It's a lesson book, a teaching method, um, a way to describe reality of God. Here's, Here's the big thing. God bringing sinners back into perfect at one mint with him. And this is only accomplished to think that through. God's perfect, God's sinless, God's holy, God's righteous. Adam sinned, humankind is now infected with sinfulness. We can't fix it. Jesus comes to take up humanity damaged by sin and to become the second Adam, to be our substitute, to heal, to restore, to perfect humanity. And he does that and he rises up and goes back into heaven as a human being, right? And now the goal is to bring all who trust him back into unity with God in heaven. Where does the action have to take place in order for that to happen? The heart's yeah. Does God need changing? No. 
Does God's law need changing? No, human beings need changing. So the whole sanctuary message is truly understood. I'm going to unpack the details for you and show you that Christ is directing the agencies of heaven for the healing and restoration of him in his people so that when we see God, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. We're being restored into Christ's likeness. That's the sanctuary message. Okay. Anything that has activity happening outside the believer, outside those who trust in God, is misplaced. Jesus is not acting to erase data from history. In other words, historical records. Some people get confused when I say that because of what I've written and what we've talked about in this document we'll get into in a little while in the lesson. They, they hear historical records being the same thing as character records. They're not the same thing. Historical records are facts of history. What's actually happened in history? Your character is your individuality, your identity, your heart, your mind. That's not the same thing as simply facts of history. For instance, David murdered Uriah, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We read in Scripture about that. We read the facts of history. They're recorded in Scripture. I suggest they're probably recorded in some historical database in heaven as well as in our Scriptures. But David repented. David got a new heart and right spirit. He was recreated in the inner man. Sinfulness was erased out of David's character. But the facts of history did not get erased, did they? And when people confuse those, they misunderstand what I'm trying to teach. God does not erase facts of history. God cleanses hearts and minds from sinfulness so that we're restored to righteousness. That's the big overview. And so all the rest of the details that we explore, it's okay if people see them differently as long as we agree on the big themes. God's perfect, sinless, created all, all the universe to operate in harmony with his own nature. Adam sinned, humankind got changed, Jesus came to fix the damage, and now is working to fix that in all the believers who trust in him. That's the big themes. Now, the details we can agree on, disagree on because why can we disagree and be okay as long as we agree on the big themes? Just like if, you're in a, if all of us were to, to describe mathematics, would all of us describe mathematics in the same way? Would some people basically just be doing addition and subtraction? That's true, isn't it true? Some, some people are doing multiplication and division. Some people are doing um, a, a complex calculus. And, and stuff that I don't even know about in mathematics. And, and the person doing those complex theoretical mathematics and stuff, I, I don't even understand it. Most of us probably wouldn't. Does that mean that our basic understanding of basic math is wrong? No, we're at different levels of understanding. And, and, and same thing is true as we understand God. He's an infinite being, and the complexities will go up as we grow in our understanding of God. So from the title of the lesson, the title of the lesson is From Contamination to Purification. Just from the lesson, title, just from the title lesson, what has been contaminated that needs to be purified? And these are questions, if you're dealing with people who are really stuck in concrete operations, 
What are concrete operations? If you think about mental, mental um, processing, there are concrete operations. There are formal operations. Concrete operations are where people take things literally. Um, what does it mean when people say that people who live in glass houses should not throw stones? Concrete operations. Well, the glass will get broken. That's concrete, very literal. Formal operations. Well, if you can't take criticism, you shouldn't criticize other people. It's a metaphor for another concept. Some people actually are stuck in concrete operations. So when they read metaphor, when they read symbolism, they take it very literally. And if you're trying to describe formal operations, well, yes, this is a, a, a metaphor, but it has a different meaning. It means this in reality. Some, sometimes there's argument. What has been contaminated that needs purified? Some think what's been contaminated is a building made out of materials. So these types of questions I'm going to go through will help you dealing with people in concrete operations. Because what it will do for them as we go through these questions, it will cause what's known as cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is where suddenly ideas are presenting that actually don't work anymore in their worldview. It's, it's, it's inconsistent. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And it will cause them uneasiness, which will, will result in a couple of things. One, those who have a heart that love truth will begin to reprocess and try to find the answers that make sense with the cognitive dissonance and that will help them grow, hopefully, from concrete to formal operations and grow in wisdom and stature. But, they can also respond by denial and allegation. You're a heretic. You're, you're a deceiver. You're, you're trying to lead us astray. Uh, you, you shouldn't be listened to and, and shut down thinking. I just take that on faith. I don't ask questions. God's ways are bigger than my ways. It doesn't have to make sense. I just believe. I just believe. And they may do that, and they're telling you they don't want to grow in truth. So, some of these questions. What, does need to be what has been contaminated needs to be purified? Well, you can also ask, what has contaminated? Would that be sin? Is it sin that is contaminated? Okay, and then what is sin? Well, sin is transgression of the law or lawlessness, okay? And you can then go with the whole question of what law and, and go down that question as well. But if you just even don't go that question, because that's a whole fruitful avenue to go with them, but you can just then, okay, transgression of the law. Ask them, can physical matter transgress the law? Can molecules choose to disobey God? If we have a piece of wood or stone or metal, can that substance sin? What if the substance were carved or molded into an idol and worshipped by people. Has the wood or stone or metal sinned? When Aaron shaped a golden calf, was the golden calf, that idol of gold, was it sin? Was it sinful? The golden calf was sinful. No, was the golden calf sinful? This piece of metal. If we should have a collection of physical ma matter, the idol, would we hold sin in our hands? If we're holding the idol, are we holding sin in our hands? See how, see how these questions are really dealing with concrete thinkers? Exposing um, thoughts? D does the universe need to be cleansed of wood, stone, and metal that has been used to create idols? Yeah. 
What does need cleansing? Would it be the hearts and minds of people who have worshipped wood, metal, stone, or any other falsehood that they've taken into their hearts and minds? Would it be the hearts and minds that need cleansing? And from what would the hearts and minds need to be cleansed of? Contamination. Sin. Contamination of? What's the contamination? Is it molecules? Is it physical contamination? It's a character. Lies about God, fear, self. Okay. Can physical matter be sinful? No. Uh, Okay. I, I, I agree with you. Then we have to understand, what does Paul mean in Romans 8 when he says that all nature groans under the weight of sin? If sinful matter cannot be sinful, how is it groaning under the weight of sin? Does he mean that the physical matter that makes up earth, including the trees and the living organisms on earth, does it mean that, that these things are sinful or that sin has damaged God's design and creation is suffering from the damage of sin? Is there a difference between suffering from the damage of sin and being sinful? Is there a difference between eradicating a disease and healing the damage caused by the disease? Yes. Are those the same or are those different? Different. Those are different. Can a person who is delirious, because they have viral meningitis, drive their car right through their house? Could they do that? Yeah. They could. Will curing the meningitis fix the house? Is the house sinful because it was damaged by the delirious person? Does the virus that caused the delirium need to be eradicated if we want the person well? Yes, Yes, we need to cleanse the, the brain, the body of the virus. Does the house also need to be fixed to be repaired? Does the house need to be cured of the viral meningitis? Are you seeing the differences between cleansing from sin and repairing damage caused by sin? They're not the same. What can be cleansed from sin and what can't be cleansed from sin? What is contaminated by sin? What's not contaminated by sin? So, what has been contaminated by Adam's sin that needs purifying? The hearts and minds of man. Hearts and minds of people. Do physical, non-living, inanimate structures in heaven need to be cleansed from sin? If wood, stone, brick, mortar, metal, silver, gold, pearls of uh, 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 gates of pearls, if, if physical matter cannot be contaminated by sin, what what's going on if we're teaching that the cleansing of the sanctuary is cleansing the building in heaven or data storage uh, devices of historical records or facts of history? Another question: Is there any sin in heaven to be cleansed? Yes. There is? Yes. Where? We'll, we'll get to it. Okay. Yes. That's what this teaches. The memory verse, for 2,300 days or years, the sanctuary should be cleansed, Daniel 8, 14. To what is it referring? From this text alone, does this tell us what the sanctuary is? No. Does it tell us which sanctuary is being cleansed? No. So the information in this text is a time frame. 2,300 days, years, time frame's given. 
a cleansing event is described, and a sanctuary is the focus of the cleansing event. But this doesn't tell us when the 2300-year time, time frame starts or ends. It doesn't tell us that. It, the, does the text tell us the type of cleansing? For instance, a physical cleansing like washing dishes or bodies versus a spiritual cleansing of minds from lies and fear and self. It doesn't really tell us what type of cleansing either, does it? So there's not a lot of information in this text, really. We need more information to understand what's actually happening. Now, this is a uniquely Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, this idea of cleansing the sanctuary in heaven. And one of the key individuals who helped found and establish this doctrine historically in Adventist doctrine back in the 19th century, uh, named Ellen White, wrote in the book, Great Controversy, the following about this. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, we're right on subject, right? Right on subject here. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. And this is also represented by the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins. Wow. Think that through. When you typically, historically have studied this, have you always included all these other ones to get full filler and understanding of what's actually happening? No. Or has this Daniel 8.14 8, verse kind of been presented almost in isolation, disconnected from all these other things that fill in the real thing that's happening? And these other Bible texts give insight, further insight to what's actually happening. According to Malachi, which is the same event... Malachi 3, 1 through 3, the Lord who you see will suddenly come to his temple. He will come like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, and he will cleanse. What's being cleansed? The Levites, the Levites are being cleansed. That's the same event as Daniel 8. You mean after 2,300 years, then the Lord is going to come to his temple and cleanse the Levites. Is that how you've always heard it taught? According to this author who established the doctrine, they're the same event. How come we don't teach it that way? Why would the Levites need cleansing? What did we just talk about? When Adam sinned, did God get changed? When Adam sinned, did God's law get changed? When Adam sinned, did the human species get changed? Where, what needs cleansing? This makes perfect sense if you understand the landscape of what's actually happening. Where does sin actually occur? Does sin happen in books, in ledgers? Or does it happen in hearts and minds? then where does cleansing need to happen? In ledgers or books or in hearts and minds? Can hearts and minds be cleansed by an external legal review of historic records and then using some type of erasing material to erase ink out of books or ledgers? Will that actually cleanse hearts and minds? Remember those concrete operators? That's what they think is happening. Because they misunderstand God's law. They misunderstand the problem as being legal rather than being a state of being. Thus they misunderstand the purpose of Christ's mission on earth. They misunderstand what God, he's doing in heaven. They misunderstand the cleansing that's, that we are offered. It's really beautiful when you understand it. But back to the same author who helped establish his doctrine. This is out of the book, The Desire of Ages. Page 161. See if this adds insight into this idea of cleansing of the sanctuary. And this is describing when he was on earth. And do you remember when he was on earth, he did something to that temple called cleansing the temple, that physical building. And this is, she's 
using that event to describe something. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson. What's an object lesson? Teaching tool. A teaching tool, okay? To teach a larger reality. An object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the, for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkness darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. Notice, Adam displaced God's presence in his heart. Fear and selfishness and the satanic principles came into the spirit temple. Adam and Eve now watching out for self, acting in self-centeredness. The world goes into darkness. The world goes into murder and extortion and bribe and evil because Satan's principles are now what 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 uh, what um, drive the, the, the spirit temple. So the spirit temple is contaminated. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. How? By Jesus becoming human, our substitute. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. How about the Adventists? Do they understand the significance of the heavenly temple they regard with so much pride? They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. Do we? The courts of, uh, of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission. What's his mission? To cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. Now notice this quote right here in this context, in this description. She just, she, his mission is to cleanse hearts and minds from sin. And now she quotes Malachi 3, 1 through 3, which she said in the previous verse describes the exact same event as Daniel eight fourteen, And this is what she says. The quote, quotes are from Scripture. The Lord you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messengers of the covenant who delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier's silver. He will purify the Levites. Make them. So what do you think about that? Do you, what do you hear? Did anything I re- read in this particular passage sound like a legal process? It's not, guys. It's actual. It's real. It's restorative. Understand what God wants for you. He wants to restore in you his character, his design. He wants to write his law in your hearts and minds. Not a list of rules. His law is a design law. The principles of love, truth, freedom upon which reality operate. He wants that to be the operating system upon which motivates your actions. He wants you to be built up into righteousness. That's what he wants. 
And so Satan hates it. He wants to replace that with a legal fraud where you are declared to be righteous even though you're not, where you're looking for something to happen way off in the cosmos somewhere with a heavenly advocate in a courtroom who's putting something down in a book, but nothing's happening in your heart. So that you have a false sense of security. I've claimed the blood price. It's been paid to my legal account, but I haven't been healed. I haven't been renewed. But what has the church gained by teaching this other way? Power over people. That's what they've gained. You think you laugh at that? You think I'm wrong? This is exactly how the imperial system works by manipulating people with fear. If you don't believe these doctrines in this way, if you don't go to church on this day, if you don't pay your tithe to this institution, if you don't hit your child, uh, if you aren't baptized in this way, if you don't go to these schools, if you, in other words, it's a legal process and you have to do legal stuff. And if you don't get the right check boxes marked, you're going to be found deficient. And only the church Our church, our institution, our organization holds the keys. You could, now some people might get, that's that's really uh, offensive, Doc. That's really offensive. Okay, how about if I put it this way? If you don't take Eucharist, if you don't go to confession, if you don't get your infant baptized and sprinkling as an infant, if you don't get your last rites done, if you commit suicide, then you've committed murder and you can't be buried in holy ground and you're lost for all time because the church can't absolve you of that sin. Because we hold the keys. We're in power. Okay, now you're speaking truth, brother. (laughs) Did you all see the same exact process with a different set of check marks? This is what happens when you accept the, the lie that God's law works like human law. What they get, they get power. They get control. And they get a false sense of security. You see, sin, the natural result of sin, is fear. As soon as Adam sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. The natural result of sin is fear. And the natural result of fear is actions to protect self. They sewed fig leaf garments together to try to cover themselves and make themselves feel not as exposed, not as fearful, not as vulnerable. That's the natural human response. And what happens? We're in sin. We're afraid. So we will sew together the fig leaf garments of a penal legal righteousness system in which Jesus came, paid a penalty. We offer that to God. It covers over us. And we're declared to be righteous even though we're not. We're still corrupt to the core, sinful, but we get declared in God's heavenly courtroom. We're legally righteous now, but we're still wicked in heart. But it doesn't matter because Jesus paid the penalty and we're not being judged. He's being judged in our place. And we feel safe in our sinfulness. Or we can do the the Catholic view. We're, we're feeling fearful from our sinfulness. So what do we do? We go to confession and we confess it to the priest and the priest says, you're absolved of your sin. And, and you take the Eucharist, and we take the Eucharist. Jesus now goes into heaven, and he offers his sacrifice to the Father to pay for your sin. And that sin is now absolved. No change is happening in you. That's what they get. They get control. And the false sense of security. God wants to cleanse hearts and minds of people from lies, fear, selfishness, like was read in the Desire of Ages text. Announcing his mission to cleanse us from sinfulness, the evil habits. 
Remember from last week's lesson, we discovered that the little horn power of Daniel 7 and the man of sin of Thessalonians 2 are the same and that the man of sin set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. We discovered he did this by waging war, a war of lies about God, the primary lie being God's law functions like human law, system of rules that are just made up or imposed that the ruling authority now must police breaches of and punish rule breakers for. That concept of law coming in to the minds of people set up in the minds of people a God who functions like Satan in character, thus the man of sin set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. God foretold through his prophet Daniel it would be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered for people to make a right judgment about God and reject the imperial views and come back to worship the designer, the creator, him who made the heavens and the earth, thus having their sanctuaries cleansed. Now in that same book, The Great Controversy, just listen to this, guys, and how much, how many times has this been presented to you? It's right there for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, but listen to this. Both the prophecy of Daniel 8.14, again, we're right on target, right on subject. Both the prophecy of Daniel 8.14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, and the first angel's message, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Point to Christ's ministration in the most holy place, to the investigative judgment, and not to the coming of Christ for the redemption of his people. Do you understand it's the hour in human history when we finally stop viewing God as a dictator and start judging him to be the creator God he's always been? That we reject this infection that came through the little horn power that caused the whole world to wonder after this beastly imperialistic system. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, we got a real whole bunch to go through. It's really, I want to get, it's so much fun if we get into all this. I hope we have time. It says, as in Daniel 2 and 7, uh, we are given here another vision of the rise and fall of the world empires through, though with a different kind of symbolism. The symbolism is direct, directly related to God's sanctuary. In this case, the symbols of a ram and a goat are used because of their connection to the Day of Atonement, sanctuary ritual, a time of judgment for ancient Israel. Ram and goats were used as sacrificial offerings in the sanctuary service, but only on the Day of Atonement are the two mentioned together. Hence, these two animals are in intentionally chosen here to evoke the Day of Atonement, which is a major focus of the vision. What kind of judgment is going on at this time? Is it a judicial process of legal accounting done in the heavenly magistrate, or is it a judgment of what is diseased, of what is misunderstood, of what is wrong in heart, mind, character, and a judgment of who trusts Jesus and who is open to have their hearts and minds cleansed by Jesus. How do you you understand this? In the book, The Great Controversy, after referencing, if you read the context, this is on page 425, if you read the context, right above it is referenced Daniel 8.14, Daniel 7, Malachi 3, Revelation 14, all those texts that are describing the same event are just referenced, and then the author goes and says this. Says the prophet... Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Again, quoting Malachi again. It was just referenced up above a few paragraphs. Now quoting it. 
Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Pause. What is being purified in this description? What is being cleansed in this description? Records, books, or characters of people? Again. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in the heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away sin among God's people upon the earth. This work is more clearly represented in the message of Revelation 14. Dear God, and give glory to him. This is what we're putting away. We're putting away the lies and distortions. We're coming back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth. We're leaving behind all the imperialistic lies and moving into uh, living in harmony with how God built reality to work. What connection, then, is there between cleansing the records in heaven and the cleansing of people on earth? What is the connection? Well, what is recorded in the records of heaven that are being cleansed? Okay, I think there's a couple different types of records in heaven. I actually think that when we get to heaven, there for all eternity future will be an accurate history. I don't think we'll get to heaven and David is going to meet Bathsheba and Solomon's going to uh, come running up and Uriah is going to be there. And I don't think that David and Bathsheba are going to go, who is this fellow Solomon? I've never heard of this guy. I think they're going to know who he is, don't you think? Yes. And I think Uriah's going to look over at Bathsheba and say, oh, Solomon's your son. Hey, I didn't know I left you pregnant. Well, actually, that's David's son. How'd that happen? You know, I have no clue. I, I don't know what happened there. Will they, will they understand? Will they know? Will we have accurate history of what transpired? Will we know what happened in the Garden of Eden? Will we know the temptations that Adam and Eve faced? Will we know the choices they made? Will we know what Cain did to Abel? Will we know what happened at the flood? We have to know. We have to know because if we don't know, what? what? Then it can repeat. Okay? I think there'll be an accurate history of everything that's transpired and that never gets erased. It's history. History doesn't change. That's one type of record. But there's another type of record. Something else is recorded there. It's not the record of history. It says here, Daniel 12.1, But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Well, this isn't a book of history. This is a book with names in it. Hmm. How about this one? Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you, loyal um, fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Or Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life. And there's another other text that say the same, the name in the book of life. In Scripture, what does name represent in Scripture? Name is not about a label that you get called when somebody wants your attention. 
In Scripture, name is about your character. That's why Jacob, deceiver, had his name changed to Israel, one who with God overcomes when he finally overcame the fear and selfishness in his heart that caused him to be a deceiver. He wasn't a deceiver anymore, so his name changed. Abram was changed to Abraham. Name is a reflection in Scripture of character. And those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's talking about our characters, our individualities are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And thus, again, the same author who helped establish the whole sanctuary doctrine wrote the following. This is out of TSB 62. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern of Jesus Christ? Are you washing the robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Those are metaphors, but it's describing metaphorically the healing of your heart and mind. Here's another one out of third manuscript release, page 352. Remember that this world is God's photographic office. The pictures of all who live here, old or young, are being made in the books of heaven. What shall the, what shall the likeness be? In other words, what's, when you get your photograph taken, if you happen to have a black eye when they take the picture, if it is not being doctored artificially, will that picture show a black eye or not show a black eye? See, what gets recorded there is simply reality. It is what it is. You may wish, I wish I didn't look like that. You ever had a picture and go, I wish I didn't look like that? Okay. Yeah, but you do. <laughs> well, that's the lighting, folks. That's the lighting. Well, let me tell you, when the, when the heavenly uh, photo- photographer takes a picture, you get perfect heavenly lighting. You get reality for what it actually is, right? Okay. And it's your character, what it actually is. That's all. That's what gets recorded there. So how do we put all this together? Imagine your child is dying of leukemia and doctors say there's nothing that can happen. There's nothing that we can do. They're completely hopeless. Your child's terminal, going to die. But you hear that out west, a doctor who has a 100% cure rate, everybody that goes to him leaves with a clean bill of health. Nobody leaves there with any record of diseases at all. And so you get an appointment, you go take your child, you get your moment with the doctor, you hand them the medical record. And in the records, they have a, a thick record of all the biopsies, all the lab reports, all the MRI scans, all the ultrasounds showing the sickness and the pathology. And the doctor opens the record, begins removing all record of disease, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back to you and go, here, no more record of disease. (laughs) Are you satisfied as a parent? Are you happy about this? This is the traditional false legal fraud of the investigative judgment being taught to many in the Adventist church. It's a lie. Here's the truth. The doctor has the records because the records are simply documenting reality of what's going on in in the body of your child, right? The doctor doesn't change the record. The doctor gets up and goes over to your child and intervenes in your child with an intervention or remedy that puts the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin the cancer cell what's remission cancer cells remit back to their previous cancer-free state 
Without the shedding of blood, sinfulness in humankind would not remit. Our hearts and minds would not be remitted or restored back to perfection as God designed Adam to be. And so what happens in the medical record is the actual efficient and accurate diagnosis and evidence of the disease, but then because the doctor actually intervenes in the child and the cancer goes into remission, the records also show the remedy being applied, and then the records show no more cancer because the cancer is gone. That's So the point I'm making here... The connection between the heavenly records and you, the only way you get your heavenly records cleansed is by allowing Christ to cleanse your hearts and minds. That's how you get them cleansed. There is no cleansing of the record without cleansing of you. Thus the quote above that said, while the investigative judgment is going on in heaven, there is a putting away of sin amongst the people of God. Why? Because the only way the records are being cleansed of sin is by cleansing your hearts and mind of sins on earth here now. That your heart of selfishness is being renewed with a heart of love. Your heart of fear is being renewed with a heart of peace and trust in God, so forth and so on. And thus, when Christ comes, those who've had their hearts cleansed are described in Revelation as this. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're no longer driven by fear and selfishness, survival drive. Watch out for me. They're driven by love and trust. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in that state. We don't love our life so much that we'll bow to this idol that we'll shrink from death. We trust God with our life. Like Daniel in the lion's den, we don't love our life so much. Like Job, there are many people in history who've achieved this. They were not what you would call sinless beings. In other words, it wasn't that they never made any mistakes or didn't need a savior. They did. It was that they had come to the point that they trusted God with their life. And they wouldn't shrink from what they knew was right simply to protect themselves. Tuesday's lesson. I think one of the things that will be a praise to God is not the single photograph of the character of someone with a journey they took and how God intervened and was all loving and all supporting and all healing. And that process will be amazing. Well, I, I love what you said. What would be the, you said, what would be the praise of God? I love that because Revelation actually says what you described as it's the song of Moses and the redeemed, the song of Moses and the Lamb. Those, and they have a song that only they know because it's the song of their healing, the song of their restoration. So we will, through all eternity future, travel the universe to visit sinless beings and we will have a song, a story to tell of our journey and what God has done for us. So I love that. It will absolutely be praise to God. That's well said. Tuesday's lesson, the first paragraph, helps us understand how the little horn power makes war against the saints. And we put that together with 2 Corinthians 10. We understand that this war is not physical. It's a war of ideas, truth versus lies, love versus selfishness, fear, um, uh, freedom versus coercion in the hearts and minds of God's intelligent beings. Who will we trust and who will we become like? That's really what the battle is about. The primary attack of the little horn has been on God's law. How do you understand God's law? Once that happened... All kinds then, once the the idea that God's law works like human law, all kinds of distortions have entered, and and, and Satan just rejoices now within Christianity because he has two um, or more views pitted against each other, arguing back and forth. Is it this way or is it this way? Is it this way or is it this way? But yet, even though they're arguing back and forth because they have the imperial law lie, you see, 
they both are actually uh, presenting the same false god. I'll give you an example. In my book, The God-Shaped Heart, I described how um, I watched a video online of a debate between a Catholic priest and a Protestant theologian over the Eucharist. And how the uh, it went back and forth, and the Protestant uh, theologian alleged that uh, transubstantiation uh, that is taught in the Eucharist uh, sacrifices Christ again and again, and the Bible says he sacrificed only once. And the Catholic priest responds that there are two elements in any sacrifice. There's the immolation phase. That's when you actually kill the animal. You, you put the knife in it and you kill it. That's the immolation phase. And there, there, then there's the offering of what has been sacrificed. So you kill it and then you take what you've sacrificed and you offer it. And there's always two phases. And he says the Bible is correct. Christ died once and for all. He was immolated once and for all, killed at the cross. But every time you take the Eucharist, then Jesus in heaven goes to God and offers what he sacrificed to God at that time to pay for your sin so you, God will then forgive and pardon your sin. And how do you think the Protestant pastor responded? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what happens. What happens is that, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are put on Christ at the cross and paid for at the cross. And when we um, confess our sins, Jesus doesn't take a sacrifice to the Father to pay for our sins at that time. He goes to the Father and presents his merits to his Father to remind his Father that he has already paid for our sins 2,000 years ago. So it's the same thing. Do you see that they both are arguing back and forth, but both of them are completely blind to the fact that they're worshiping the same imperial dictator God who, if you don't offer him the blood of a human sacrifice, will use his power to kill you for your sin. This is the imperial lie. They both are still operating on the imposed law lie. Just have two methods of presenting an offer. This is, this is by the way, Baal worship. It's paganism. We must offer blood sacrifices to the deity. If we don't offer the blood sacrifices, then the deity uses power to kill us and torment us and so forth. So he must be appeased or else he'll pour out wrath on us. This is paganism. But notice again how Satan wins because he has both sides arguing back and forth on which technical issue is right. Well, how does this play into the sanctuary message? We'll see if you can see the same process happening in the third paragraph of our lesson. In, on Tuesday's lesson. In Daniel 8.11, the daily sacrifice is a reminder of what happened in the earthly sanctuary to designate the various and continual aspects of the ritual service, including sacrifices and intercession. It is through these services that sinners are forgiven and sins are dealt with in the tabernacle. This earthly s- system represents Christ's intercessory ministry in the heaven, heavenly sanctuary. So as the prophecy predicts, a papacy, the papacy exchanges the intercession of Christ for the intercession of priests. By means of such counterfeit worship, the little horn takes away Christ's intercessory ministry and symbolically casts down the place of Christ's sanctuary. Do you see that they're doing the same thing here? So first off, you have to question everything that's said here. They said that, that this sanctuary, that, that um, through these offerings of the animals in the Old Testament, the sinners are forgiven of sins. No, they weren't. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on on those who are ceremonially unclean uh, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, um, offer himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. See, that only cleansed them outwardly, symbolically, ceremonially. It didn't cleanse their consciences. 
Where does sin happen? Do we get, do we need our bodies washed? Is that what we need? We need our hearts and minds. It says the same thing in Hebrews ten nineteen through 21, that, uh, that we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and have our bodies washed pure water. So what's actually happening? We are being cleansed by receiving the life of Christ into our hearts. Remember, the, the um, blood is a metaphor for the life. So it's no longer I don't live, but Christ lives in me. But if we retain the legal lie, the imposed law lie, then we have two sides arguing against each other. We must either go to the priests on earth to intercede with God in heaven to get our sins forgiven by presenting to God the sacrifice that Jesus made and having those bad deeds removed from the heavenly record so we won't be judged. We go to the priest with the Eucharist to have him then uh, uh, implore God, Jesus, to go and present the sacrifice to the Father so the Father then won't punish us for our sins. That's one way. And that, of course, according to what we just read, takes Jesus out of his role. Um, But there's the other way. We must go to our heavenly high priest who represents, represents us in the courts of heaven so that he goes to God and reminds God of the legal price he's already paid and then removes from the record books the bad deeds of our, of our, uh, from the record books in heaven. Do you see they both are still presenting the same lie? That the problem is with God and the record-keeping system of heaven and Jesus has to do something to God to get God to not use his power to kill us and he has to do something in the books to erase the history so when the Father looks in the books he can't see the history because if he sees it he'll react with anger and wrath and still hurt us. Let's talk about forgiveness. Could God, from his heart, forgive us without Jesus coming to earth as our Savior? Yes, he absolutely did, yes. Or do you think Jesus had to die in order to get God to be able to forgive us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So did God forgive before or after Jesus died? But is forgiveness from God sufficient to fix the sin problem? Is forgiveness from God sufficient? His forgiveness, personal forgiveness. I forgive them. I love them. I forgive. Does that fix the problem? No. It does not. Even with God's forgiving attitude, humankind still had a condition of being that was out of harmony with how God built life to operate, and we were dead in trespass and sin. We had a terminal condition that needed fixing or healing. This line of questioning, asking these types of questions again, exposes the fallacy of the legal approach. In the legal approach, the problem is not our condition, but a legal standing before the court of heaven. And God may have a forgiving heart, but the law of heaven will not allow God to actually forgive us unless someone pays a penalty. Thus, Jesus died to pay the penalty so that God could now have the legal right to do what was in his heart to do. That's the penal legal lie. The obstacle is the, the law system of heaven. And it's fraudulent. The actual obstacle was the condition of the hearts and minds of men that needed to be restored to righteousness. So Ellen White writes the following. The law requires... And this is such a powerful paragraph. You memorize one paragraph. Remember that. Memorize this one paragraph. It's our page, page seven sixty two. One paragraph. It really is a summation. Shows this is it all. Because the penal legal view, the law requires legal payment. Someone has to pay the penalty. This author says the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. 
These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Who is this gift being offered to? To God? No, to us. His life stands for the life of men. Substitution. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through, through, They have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, not through a payment, not through a legal accounting. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character. Notice what's happening. We are being transformed. We're being healed. We're being renewed. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in him. Notice what justice is. Justice is doing what's right. Well, what's the right thing to do if your child disobeys and drinks poison, but they're not dead yet? What's the right thing for you to do if you have the ability? Punish them or heal them? What's the just thing for you to do? I told them not to drink the poison, but they drank it anyway. If I'm going to be just, I've got to get a belt out and beat them. That's imperialism. That's human law. No. If I'm going to do what's just under design law, under the law of love, I have to heal them. Because if I don't, they're going to die. That's Adam and Eve after sin. I'm going to send Christ, not to condemn the world, but to save it. John 3.17. This is reality. Yes. This strikes so close to me when you're talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary and the exchange between Jesus and me. Um... Almost three years ago, I was at the worst place of my life possible. I had just gone through a divorce a year and a half before that. I was angry. I was bitter. I was consumed with unforgiveness. I was completely just ate up. And something had happened that um, the hurt got to be so bad that I heard the Holy Spirit speaking to me and he gave me the invitation that if I would let my walls down just a little bit, that he would come in and take care of the rest. And I didn't know the rest he was talking about at that time. But that night I had started writing a letter to somebody that had hurt me, that I was reaching out to them in love and concern. And as a result of that letter, um, it had broke something inside of my heart. And I had to run to the bathroom because somebody was in the house. And I literally, for almost an hour, I sobbed and sobbed. And I didn't realize at the time that all that junk was coming out of me, all that anger, all that things that I had pressed down. I had been drinking trying to cover it. I had done everything I could think of, and nothing would cover it. But during that hour, I thought I was going insane because it was so bad. And towards the end of it, I thought, God, if this is the way it's going to be, just take me out. I can't take this. And so towards the end of it, all of a sudden, it was like God wasn't with me. I felt like he wasn't with me that whole time. And then towards the end of it, all of a sudden the tears stopped and I had peace inside. And I knew something had happened. I felt God was in the room. I felt he was in my heart. And from that time until now, I have been pursuing Him and growing. I mean, I can't explain everything the way you're explaining it, but I have had the experience. I know what you're talking about. And this exchange 
is not external. It's in here. That's right. That's right. And it's in here. It exhibits itself in your life. That's right. And that's the cleansing. Say thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for that's the heart cleansing from because we've all been wronged, we've all been injured, we've all been exploited, we've all been taken advantage of, and we then are all faced with a decision: Do we hold to bitterness? Do we hold to hurt? Do we hold to anger? Yes. Or do we reach out to God to heal the wounds in our hearts that we can't heal? And do we pursue His methods and principles, or do we use what feels in the moment maybe satisfactory and gratifying retaliation? I can tell you in this ministry. I have been tempted um, to lash out at folks who have said ugly things about me in this ministry, and I've had to have prayerful times to not give in to those temptations and not say ugly things and go to war on the war path and, and be patient. And, and I have more peace at not going down that path. Yes. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I want to share with you out of Desire of Ages. I just read a text to you a moment ago about the law requires righteousness. I just read that to you. One, one, I want to read to you now a little before and a little after. Because I really, it's a great chapter. I want you to get a sense of what the issues really are about design law versus imposed law. This is starting on page 761. It says, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. From the very beginning, he has the view that God's law is like human law. If you're going to have justice and you break a law, then every sin, every broken law requires punishment. Because if you don't punish, it's not fair. It's not just. And so right in the opening of the great controversy, this is the lie. And it's the lie I have heard many pastors perpetuate from their pulpit. Justice requires that sin has to be punished. How many of you heard a pastor say this? And this is Satan's view of God's law. If they say it, they're telling you they are still stuck and operating under the wine of Babylon, the infection that God's law functions like human law. Continuing on um, with the next paragraph. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as to no other created being was given a revelation of God's love, understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness. See, Satan knew God's law didn't work this way. Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could, that, that God could do to save him. Why? Was God unwilling to give his life for angels? Jesus would die for humans, but he doesn't love angels quite enough to die for angels. No. Understand how reality works. What do you think was necessary? I'm going to, in the next couple of sentences, same paragraph, man was in a different position than that of angels. In the light of, of what's being described, in the light of God's glory. Lucifer had seen the truth about God's character, his methods, his principles, and rejected it. What do you think is necessary to save man? Because man wasn't standing in that position of the light of God's glory in the same way Lucifer was. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistries. The height and depth of the love of God, he did not know. For him, there was hope in a blood payment to pay the wrath of God for his legal wrongs. Which is what the penal lie teaches. No, here's what it is. For him, there is hope in a knowledge of God's love. 
by beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. Pause. What law lends are you interpreting justice through? Did you immediately say, well, justice requires, we have to have accountability. We have to hold them accountable. We have to have a tribunal. We have to look at the records. We have to punish sin. That's what most people think when they hear that word. That's human law. That means that you're seeing this through the lie that Satan has already told that every sin must meet its punishment. That's what you think justice is. That's Satan's view of justice. It's a lie. When you understand design law, you understand justice is always doing what is right, the just thing, and the right thing is always in harmony with God's character of love, and the harmony of God's character of love is always seeking to heal and restore, to put right that which is out of harmony or that which is wrong, and or to leave free those who refuse it. That's the just thing as well. Keep going with the quote. The law reveals the attributes of God's character and not a jot of tittle could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Why? Because it's design law. It'd be like saying you can't meet a drowning, you can't change the law of respiration to meet a drowning man underwater. You have to take the drowning man and put him back in harmony with the law of respiration. You can't change God's design law that is, life is built upon to meet people who have taken themselves out of harmony with that law. You have to take them and put them back in harmony with it if you want them to live. It's very simple. But if you have human law model, why can't you? We can amend laws. Well, because God has got a perfect set of rules to start with, and he's not going to change them. That's how the legal people go. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then the paragraph, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. I won't read it again. We're going to move on to the paragraph after. God's love was, has been expressed in his justice no less than his mercy. Again, justice, what law lends. Do you understand that means healing? Healing the damage of sin letting, and letting those who refuse the healing to reap what they choose, and do you see how both those actions, here is the healing for all who trust me, and I will fix all the damage and restore you to life and perfection. And all those who won't let me, I will let you have what you've taken. I hate it, it breaks my heart, but you will die of this condition. Do you see how both of those are just and right and also expressions of love? That's how justice and love are the same. So his love has been expressed in his justice, no less than his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne, the fruit of his love. It has been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. How did Satan seek to prove the righteousness of the law is an enemy to peace? By getting you to think the law is in human law, imposed rules. And if you believe it's that way, then God becomes the inflictor of punishment for breaking, and he becomes the police who's watching you for any breaches. And there's no peace, there's only fear in that. It takes away your peace to believe that. That's, and that's coming from the law that has to be enforced. By his life and death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven. Notice, sin could be forgiven, not paid for. If somebody stole $10,000 from you, your brother, and he can't pay the debt, and then somebody else, maybe your cousin, has mercy on your brother and comes and pays you back the $10,000 plus interest. After you receive the payment, do you look at your brother and go, now that I've been paid, I'm going to go ahead and forgive your debt. 
See, that's the other inconsistency in the penal legal lie. Jesus pays our debt, but God forgives us our debt. It doesn't work at all. But sin could be forgiven, and the law, and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Satan's charges were refuted. Another deception was now brought forward. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, and the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. What is that lie based on? Abrogated means set aside or did away with it or changed it or uh, what, what's that? This lie is based on the same lie. What kind of law can actually be abrogated? What kind of law we, we can say, we're, we're, we're doing away with that law? Imposed laws. So this idea that the law is abrogated by the death of Christ is another way of saying the same lie. His law is no different than the laws we make up. And now that Christ paid the debt, the law is done away with. Because it's imposed. It's another way of presenting the same lie. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. That's exactly right. He could have changed the law rather than fixing the problem that sin caused in us. But to abrogate the law would be to immortalize transgression and place the world under Satan's control. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through its obedience to its precepts. Why? Because that's how we're healed. Save means healing. We're only healed in harmony with God's design for life. That Jesus was uplifted on the cross, yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represented as destroying it. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. That law which was spoken by God's own voice, excuse me, that the law which was spoken by God's own voice is faulty, that some specification has been set aside, is the claim which Satan now puts forward. It is the last great deception that he will bring upon the world. He needs not uh, he, he needs not to assail the whole law if he can lead men to disregard one precept. His purpose is gained. Why is that true? Because if you're willing to set aside one precept, what have you already accepted about the law? That it can be changed. That it can be set aside. That it's imperial. That it's just a system of rules. So you're actually accepting the premise that God's law works like human law and that God is an imperial dictator and God will punish you for your sin. That's the only way you can believe that any part of God's law can be set aside. If you understand it as design law, laws of gravity, laws of physics, and all the other design laws, you understand that none of it can be set aside because life wouldn't exist. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, not one jot or tittle of the law can be changed or else life as we know it doesn't exist anymore. By consenting to break one precept, men are brought under Satan's power. By by substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. When we actually worship a God who's an imperial dictator, this is the beastly system. No one can buy or save from him who has the mark of the beast. We must enforce our way. We must coerce people to believe the way we believe. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others. And in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow man. That's exactly what happens. And then last paragraph in this whole series here. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will be continued until the end of time. That warfare, when Lucifer began his, uh, what was it about? Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. You understand, when Satan began his attack on God's law, there was no Sabbath. Does everybody know that reality? The earth hadn't been created yet. And the Sabbath was created at the end of the creation of this planet. 
Prior to that, there was no Sabbath. So this attack on the law in heaven was not an attack on the Sabbath. It was an attack on design law versus imposed law. The type of law that God uses. That's why angels in heaven thought that the idea of this law was something completely unthought of. What kind of law is in force and you're expected to be in harmony with it, but you're not informed of it? Only design law. You can think again, the example, Isaac Newton discovers gravity and goes and tells his friends, hey, I've discovered the law of gravity. Here's an equation. Huh, there's a law about that? I just thought that's how things work. Never knew there's a law about it. Things just fall when you let go of them. That's the only types of law that can be enforced that you have no awareness of. And that's the kind of law that was in heaven. But Satan comes along and alleges that it must be punishment. So the warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will be continued to the end of time. Every man will be tested. That's women too. It's a generic old you know, 19th century way of saying human beings. In, our, in today's, nobody uses this language anymore, so you think you're talking male and female. Every person will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here is the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Now get this. Every character will be fully developed. And all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. What's, what's the issue? The central issue. How do you understand God's law? Which means how do you understand God, creator or dictator? Which means who do you trust? And whose methods do you prefer? And who do you open your heart to? And by beholding, we become changed to design law, the law of worship, but only by returning to the truth about who God is and worship him who, hold, who made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and all that in them is, do we open our heart to have our temples cleansed. Yes. Sanctuary in heaven. When you're talking to a lot of people who hold the legal view, they will ask you, is there a, do you believe in a real physical temple in heaven? You'll get this question. And the answer you should give them is yes. You should say, yes, I absolutely believe. And you should then say back to them, But if you use inspired materials, what is the real physical sanctuary in heaven constructed out of? What is it built from? And if they can't answer it, they're clueless. Make them go study. Go study, come back, give me Bible references and other, and I'll even accept Ellen White quotes since that was an Adventist doctrine, then you can see what the founders thought about this. What did the founders think about this? And give me some quotes. What is the temple in heaven built out of? Here's a good one. Three manuscript release, 231. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe and hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house all prepared for use. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of this world. The material, the material of the the temple in heaven, now get this, the material must not be dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed. We must be stones fitted for the building. 
We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. We should be lively stones, not dead ones, but live ones that will reflect the image of Christ. What do you think of this quote? You see, this imperial legal thing leads people down a trail of false security in a legal adjustment in, in, a, in a historical record book in which facts of history are being erased in order to be sure that an imperialistic punishing judicial magistrate doesn't use his power to torture us and we have false security knowing that Jesus is there to protect us from him rather than opening the hearts for our high priest to come into our hearts and write the law in our hearts and minds. Remember the new covenant? Where in the new covenant is the law placed? It's in us, in our hearts and minds. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. If any of you are interested in this document, this document goes into great details about, it's called the Heavenly Sanctuary Investigative Judgment for the Modern World. It goes into great details. And on page uh, 16, there's a couple of quotes from the great controversy uh, that people in the legal mindset will use quotes like this to try and make it appear to be physical, legal, ledger-wise. And I have gone through and given the quote in black, and then I've, in red, explained what it actually means in the healing view and why this is actually quite okay to understand if you understand the, the design law, healing reality of what's transpiring. And, and I think that'll be a, um, maybe a good afternoon activity to reflect on. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessings you've given us, for the fact that you did not leave mankind abandoned to die of sin, but you sent your son Christ to take up humanity, damaged by what Adam has done, and to perfect the human species back into your original design. And now Christ is our heavenly representative, our heavenly high priest, administering all the agencies for our healing. We ask that the Holy Spirit will come and take his victory, reproduce it in us, that our hearts, minds can be cleansed, and we can be stones fitted for your temple in heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.